Welcome back to the pod. My name is Brandon Shu. I'm the host of Acts of Pod this week. As we uh, enter into the early weeks of October here, we're approaching hunting season, specifically big game hunting. So I thought it would be interesting to interview my friend, Barry Sutton. Barry is a partner at Clark Hill Law Firm. He is in uh, the Birmingham, Michigan area around Detroit. And uh, Barry has been practicing law for about 27 years. Most of that time, he has been representing a good chunk of the hunting product manufacturing space, where it is an extremely litigated area of product liability, specifically as we talk about tree stands. There's a lot of claims and litigation that arises out of these products, you know, mostly because they're an elevated product where, you know, people are sitting in a tree. Most of the time they have a, a firearm or a large bow or crossbow in their hands. They're getting up in these trees early in the morning, dealing with mother nature and the tree itself kind of being an unknown quantity. And oftentimes these hunters are leaving these trees, stands up in the trees for years at a time, which is obviously not what they were intended to do. So needless to say, there's a lot of a lot of litigation that comes out of it. So Barry is a really interesting guy to talk to, specifically as it relates to product liability in the in the hunting space. So we had a great conversation there. We talked about mitigating factors and how we can how we can uh, you know change the landscape here in terms of how we fight these claims, uh, how insurance plays a role, and what does social inflation in the uh, in the hunting world at least look like in Barry's eyes. So I hope you enjoy the pod. Thanks a lot. Hello, Acts of Pod. Welcome back to the show. Today we have a uh, very special guest, my friend, longtime uh, peer in the product liability space. I don't know if I'm a peer. Uh, I'm, I'm a subordinate, probably more than a peer. Barry Sutton from from Clark Hill. Barry, welcome to uh, the pod. Well, thank you very much. I, I would consider you a peer, not a subordinate. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know what the right word is. You know, I'm not a lawyer, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express one time, so. Ah, well, you got that going for you. So I got that You going should be good. Uh, you will see here that Barry is on, uh, on our photo when we post this interview, that Barry is uh, head to toe in his camel, or at least chest to head because we don't really know during quarantine we don't really know what what anybody has on lower than chest level <laughs> i learned that there believe it or not there's been some folks in in some hearings with some judges that that had like shorts on underneath and they stood up and the judges weren't really happy so i learned to yeah. not try that type of thing early so don't stand up that's the lesson well that's one of the lessons yes yeah <laughs> well so barry and i have uh I've been working together for a while in the hunting space from a uh, product liability standpoint. But Barry, why don't you give the uh, the listeners here a little bit of background on you and the firm and your history in the product liability hunting product space? That was a lot of questions. Let me see if I can chunk it a little bit. So, you know, I've been practicing for 27 years, since 1993. I've been primarily practicing in the product liability sector. I started my career, cut my teeth on a lot of cases around here in the Michigan area, and quickly moved to some national automotive airbag and seatbelt cases in which we defended 
the airbag and seatbelt manufacturers, tier, tier one suppliers throughout the United States and product liability actions. Kind of developed this national practice as a result. In, in the early 2000s, right around 2001, 2002, both myself and my partner, Mel Carfus, who I work closely together in these cases, we each had a tree stand case for different manufacturers. And as part of of our investigation in that case, we were invited to the Tree Stand Manufacturers Association annual meeting where we went, we listened to some presentations, we listened to some some difficulties that the, the industry was going through and some ideas that they had. And we realized that our program, it was just scaled to defend not only huge, large companies, but also small companies, was a really good fit for this industry. The, the stories that we learned, the in investigation of the cases that we had, and some other things made it easy for us to discover that these cases were very defensible, that these these tree stand manufacturers and, and honey manufacturers were being sued and defended by attorneys that did not have a lot of background in both hunting or in the product liability or in this particular industry. And as a result, we developed a program based you know, somewhat off of my national experience. I've been working for over a decade in that national experience. We developed a program to come and bring to this sector. And you know, as we did so, as we began to get more and more clients, you know, the whole industry came together. We probably represent about 95% of this industry now on a national basis and do all of the work. And these cases are very, very uh, defensible. And we can pretty much go out and take a look at the products uh, and take a look at the inspectatory and together with our team, which includes LJ Smith, who's a hunter safety expert and accident rec- hunter, hunting accident reconstruction expert, and George Saunders, a mechanical engineer with a variety of, of material engineers if it's a material issue. We can pretty much go out and look at the product and tell you what happened and know what happened. So we're ahead of the game and we defend it. You know, since that time, as our involvement in this industry grew, it took over our dockets a lot. You know, I would say that that probably 80-90% of my work is now in this field, in the hunting field. It's expanded beyond just tree stands. It's just expanded to bowstrings, to crossbows, to compound bows, to muzzle loaders, to firearms, etc. So we've grown with the industry. Our firm, when we joined our firm, is Clark Hill. When we joined Clark Hill, it was about 100 eight attorneys. I think we were 108 and 109 attorneys. We're now over 650 attorneys on a national basis, which gives us a huge footprint across the United States and makes it makes it easy for us to use ourselves as local counsel throughout the United States. That was a mouthful. I hope that answered your question. That was a lot. That was a lot. I first met you, Barry, in uh, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Now, for the, the folks at home here, I want to paint a story here about how Barry and I first met. Barry alluded to this uh, Tree Stand Manufacturers Association, which I was also invited to in, I think it was 2015, maybe, when I first started working in the in the space as well. And uh, they have a lot of get-to-know-you activities, and the golf, golf was one of these activities. Barry and I got assigned to the same group together with some others, and we introduced ourselves. And Barry spent the first maybe 17 holes of that day calling me Brian instead of Brandon. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I'm not too in your face. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say much until he called me Brian for about the 17th time. And I said, you know, Barry, it's Brandon. 
And uh, that, you know, that kind I was of... hoping you'd forget this story. I was really hoping you'd forget this story. This, this is an absolute true story. And, you know, you were a very, very, very good sport about it. But, you know, because of the way you handled handled it, it really impressed me. And, you know, we've worked closely ever since. And I, I sincerely apologize for that. <laughs> I never, I have rarely bring this up to bear. Maybe, you know, once a week. No, that, uh, that I think the relationship for us and uh, we've been working working well together ever from a tree stand standpoint Barry you know what what do we norm what do you normally see when somebody files a lawsuit obviously you know as with most product liability matters these these lawsuits are usually the error on the user but, but what do we normally see here with with tree stand cases specifically well just let me give you a, a kind of a background and and a lot of these cases can be summed up in in a little bit so all of us tree stand users know that you know, you're at, up at a height. It's a it's a small platform. If you misstep, if you trip, uh, if you potentially get buck fever, some hunters fall asleep. You can fall off this platform. You know, every since 2004, every single tree stand has come with a full body harness. For whatever reason, in 100% of our cases, they're not wearing a harness, or they're wearing a the harness, but the harness is not connected. Typically, something like that, like I just said, happens. And what happens is gravity works. So it pulls a person down toward the ground. And as they pull a person down toward the ground, they'll hit the structure of the tree stand on the way down. And then they'll be on the ground with a broken leg or other injuries. And they'll look up and they'll see the tree stand is, is bent or, or the cable has, has pulled out or the webbing has broken or things like that. A lot of these cases are they look up and they think, well, I didn't do anything wrong. It must have broken. And that's what caused my fall. And it's not the actual truth. And we can go back and typically prove this just by the physical evidence on it, you know, especially the dynamic bending. You know, all tree stands are tested and certified to meet industry standards. And we can we can use that and extrapolate and replicate the damage to the stands. So that's the first type of stands and injuries. And the other injuries we see typically are these stands that people just leave outside for a long period of time and don't maintain or inspect them. Mother Nature is a bear, and Mother Nature does a lot to damage anything that's kept outside. If you kept a car outside and parked it in your driveway for five years and didn't do anything, you know you would start to see rust. The car wouldn't work anymore because Mother Nature's doing its its work. But for some reason, some people think they can leave a tree stand up in a tree for five, six, seven, eight years, and it'll be the same as it was new. So we see some some instances in which people have left these tree stands up in a tree, and that's what caused the accident. You know, tree growth, this tree growth, it puts stresses on cables, it puts stresses on chains, it puts stresses on webbing, corrosion. Other things can develop if you don't maintain and take care of it, just like any other product. You have to take care and maintain it. If you didn't maintain your, pro- your car, you didn't change your oil, you, you, you wouldn't be surprised when the car didn't work in it after a short period of time. So... You know, those are those are the two main categories of what we see out in the field. We'll typically get a complaint in if we don't have notice of the claim first and we get a complaint in basically cold. I'm typically very skeptical of what's in, in the complaint and the allegations. It usually turns out that the allegations are not factually accurate in any way. That story is similar probably across a lot of products, you know, where where we have a perfectly fine designed product when it comes out of uh, you know, the manufacturing world. And then after it's kind of used and abused or, or it's, you know, being subject to mother nature, like you said, you know, the, obviously, obviously things change. There's two sides 
of the kind of the manufacturer's abilities here. One is proactively, you know, what, what can they do to, you know, ensure that these, these accidents are mitigated, but then reactively, you know, what's the best approach and who should they be talking to and that sort of thing. Why don't we start with that first category, you know, proactively for, you know, for clients that you're not working with, which isn't very many, obviously, in this category, you know, what, what should they be thinking about when they're designing the product and they're, they're putting the product out in the marketplace? What should, what should they be thinking about come hunting season here and the better impact the, the results? Well, the truth of the matter is that as they are thinking about it, there's a lot of design that goes in to protect these products, even for abuse and misuse. They're making these stands, the industry standard requires a factor of safety of over two. They're making these stands much higher than that to, to give more buildup or back, backbone in the stand, so to speak. They're, they're using materials that are weather resistant. They're using high propylene straps. They're using straps that are good for different environments because there's a wide variety of environments are out there. They're using zinc galvanization process on steel products. And in addition to that, they're also putting in every single instructions comes with very important instructions and they're instructions on maintenance and on inspection. These products have to be properly maintained. So every single, by industry standard, every single instruction manual says, do not leave a tree stand in a tree for more than two weeks at a time. And part of that is to make sure you're taking it down. It tells you to store in a safe, dry environment, taking it down, make sure you're inspecting it. Uh, make sure you store it correctly and you're not keeping it up year-round. They're already doing all these proactive things to to stop that. And, you know, if I had a dime for every time I went through an in, a deposition where the plaintiff's counsel has told me, oh, you know, this is great. This happened to the stand, whatever it is. And I get into the deposition and, the you know, the actual plaintiff says, of course, I knew you had to maintain these products. Of course, that's common sense. Of course, it says that and I should have done that. And of course, it says that and I should have done that. And the cases kind of go away because of that. And the value of the cases you get much, much lower because all of the manufacturers are taking those type of steps. You know, in addition to that, they, they're, they're having stands tested by third-party labs. Part of the testing process are cycle tests where they're cycle, cycling the loads and the products and repeatedly to, to show how that it can withstand repeated loans over use. They're talking, they, they do tests regarding the, the loads. They're doing tests regarding the stability on them. They test the harnesses to make sure that they not only work in a, in a result of a fall, but they, can, they have certain amount of forces that the body sees. They're already being very, very, very proactive on this. And that's, so it's kind of a misnomer saying that, that what else can they do? You know, goodness, I think the industry does a great job in mitigating right. those type of instances. Right. No, I would agree. From a re, you know, reactively, a couple of things that, from my perspective, that have been going on in the the insurance, you know, the product liability space recently, and we hear a lot about it from underwriters and reinsurance carriers, is this idea of like social inflation, like the the value of the human life is going up with medical trends increasing, you know, wages going up, everything else. So they get into the courtroom and they worry about, you know, again, it's an insurance coin phrase, I think. You tell me if it's something that you hear about in the in the courtroom. But, you know, nuclear verdicts, like these verdicts that are getting larger and larger due to the social inflation of, of human life. Have you been seeing that at all from your side? Have, just as you look at, you know, verdicts coming in and both in your in the tree stand or hunting industry and outside of it, are you witnessing that? 
the verdict, the values of cases going up? You know, I think objectively that juries do a great job. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough, uh, knock on wood, to have a lot of success in my career. You know, so I'll, I'll tell you a couple things. There's no question that the plaintiff's bar keeps trying to push those amounts and say that these cases are worth, the case is worth more, the cases are worth more. You know, typically it's not until their expert gives away the farm at the expert deposition or the court rules in our favor on a, on a number of motions in limine that they finally understand that the case's value is not worth what it is. From my perspective, you know, last year I tried a, a paraplegic case in Missouri. From my perspective, you know, you try the cases, you try these cases, and you, you know, you try them saying there's no defect in the product whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, they're not wearing a harness. Jurors have a hard time getting getting over that. I think that you know, talking, you know, I spent hours talking to the jury afterwards. In fact, some of them reached out to me after as well, just to just to pick my brain in a couple of things and to talk to them and see what they're doing is they understand certainly the value of life and the value of, of damages, but they also understand that this industry is working really, really hard to make these products safe. And they understand that these products are only as good as the users that are using them. And if they're cavalier about it and they don't read the instructions, they don't follow the instructions, they don't wear their harnesses, you know, this product has, has an inherent danger in it. But jurors don't believe that that means you could just not read instructions and not follow instructions. Jurors want you to read and follow the instructions because all these cases are, are arising out of what I would characterize as, mis- as misuse. You know, these are instances that the, that the jurors, the value of the claims are going way, way down and typically are ending in defense verdicts. To answer your question a little bit more succinctly is to say, I think the plaintiff's bar is driving that analysis up, but that you know, we're seeing success and we're seeing that jurors are really buying and understanding and doing their job when we're faced with a wide variety of different jurors. The other thing, just to answer that real quickly, the other thing is that some of what's driving those bigger verdicts are certain cases happening in, in large urban areas. If you look up, for instance, there's a publication that that's talks about the worst jurisdictions in the country all of them are in urban areas. These cases aren't typically pending in urban areas. These cases are pending typically in rural areas where that type of inflation doesn't exist. The, the, the people, the good peoples of those counties or those parishes, if you're in Louisiana, you know, know, a value, know the value of money and, and don't have this huge inflation on them. Uh, I suppose unless you're move, removing cases to federal court in a, in a nearby metro area, but even if you're in some of those states, I mean, the, the, you know, they're, they're still not very populated in the nearby f- federal court circuit. So, yeah, it makes sense. The federal court v- venues, because they're pulling from a variety of different counties or parishes, you're not going to see the same type of jury pool you will see in, in, in one of those judicial bad, bad points or, or jurisdictions that are bad. It's just you don't see that. You might see 15 or 20 percent pull from that jurisdiction, but you get a good mix. And, you know, typical in any large urban area, there's going to be a mix of, of people that value money and would be more defense oriented. And you see people that that may be more plaintiffs oriented. But in federal court, you do not see as 
those publications would have you believe statutories that are just on the plaintiff's side, if that makes sense to you. Makes total sense. So when you engage a new client and they uh, you know, haven't been maybe accustomed to some of the strategies that you use in this space, when, when you go out and kind of react to a claim, what do, what do you tell, you know, new clients? I mean, what, what are some of the strategies that, you know, you implement when, when you're first getting hired by a new client and kind of taking over a case for them? Part of it is, is what we bring to our knowledge of the industry and being able to understand where the case is going and cut it off before they get there. So there are a lot of these cases in which a plaintiff counsel will file a case and, you know, they don't have a great working understanding of the industry. And so they try to take discovery so that they can come up with a theory. We typically can can go out, inspect the product, inspect the, the tree or the scene, and determine you know what happened and how to cut them off on those type of things. So that's one of the things. You know, the second thing is to help guide what's proven to work, give them peace of mind, give them somebody to call at any point in time. I've got clients call me, you know, call me after midnight or if they've got an issue. You know, being available for them to give them peace of mind. You know, that's another thing that's a big and important. You know, somebody calls in and they might just say, hey, I got a wrong screw in this thing and they don't know how to respond and they don't want to put anything in writing, you know, bad without talking to us. They give us a call. So it's a, it's a huge peace of mind, mind thing there. But, you know, I can't underestimate to you the, what happens in these depositions when you sit down and people try to give you certain claims that we know are not true. Like, you know, testifying that, you know, large box stores sold products that were 10 years old at the time. You know, that's not happening. Right. We know that's not happening because we represent the box stores. We know when they're, they're feeding us a lie or, or they try to say, oh, I bought a tree stand from XYZ company five years ago and it didn't come with instructions. It didn't come with, with a harness. We know that's not true because, you know, we typically represent that company. You know, we know what's in their boxes. And, you know, it's typically, they always try to say they have other people's, people's products. So, you know, if you've got XYZ companies product at issue, they want to say, oh, I, I always used ABC companies before. Well, because we probably represent them, we know exactly what was included in the ABC's product. We know exactly what they came with. And, you know, I just took a deposition last week during the deposition, you know, went, went down with exactly what he was taught at Hunter Safety because I knew it because I've, I've researched that issue before. I knew everything he was taught about tree stand safety in his hunter safety course. I knew exactly what, you know, videos he watched in that. I knew exactly what he was tested on. I knew everything about any of the other tree stands he had and what, what he was told and what he was given in that, what the warning labels say. You know, that's invaluable when you're taking a deposition and you just watch the plaintiff as they're responding, getting smaller and smaller and smaller because they realize, hey, I wasn't just told not to do what I did one time. But I was told repeatedly over and over again, and eventually what it turns out to is you made the intentional decision to not follow the manufacturer's instructions and warnings. Getting that is huge. Part of what we do is peace of mind is, you know, we're there to walk people through any type of scenario that they have, whether or not it's a claim. Part of it is, you know, making sure they're protected and getting ahead of the curve in, in a litigation so we can understand and, and defend them and seeing where things will happen. You know, part of that also is preparation of their witnesses. So we spend a lot of time prepping people for witnesses as witnesses. And we do that because we know questions are going to be asked. We know we've seen it time and time again, what they're going to be asked, how they're going to phrase their question, et cetera. And we spend a lot of time making sure that their witnesses know and understand that. Too many times we've heard stories 
when we hadn't represented a company in, in long, long ago in a past, that they would show up for depositions and the, you know, the attorney would just say, well, you know more about the product, let's go. And that was you know, the prep they got. And you know, we'll spend hours, hours prepping these people for depositions. Well, self-plug here, but let's talk about insurance for a second. Obviously, you and I, you know, have strategized on this a lot in our in our history. But you know, there are certain situations where the insurance that maybe a newbie in the industry has, as they're growing, becomes kind of detrimental to their litigation strategy. Can you talk about situations where somebody is new to the industry and all of a sudden they get you know a lot of growth? And, you know, they're still stuck with maybe a startup insurance mentality where maybe you're, you know, you and your firm are not, you know, written into the policy or not, not allowed to be a you know, choice of counsel or that sort of thing. What happens is they'll typically have a local agency will set them up in some type of insurance program. You know, they don't have loss runs. They don't have any, any losses as they, as they go forward. So they're happy to just pay whatever the premiums, but then they get, in the case and they find out that the insurance carrier is going to appoint any type of counsel that's in that jurisdiction, the insurance carrier will not hire us unless it's a negotiated part of it. And they will be gladly hire us, which we could talk about in a minute as well, as long as it's part of the negotiation. And they like experts. They really do. But you got to put it in, in the negotiation because too many of the adjusters want to hire people they're familiar with in the local jurisdiction. And we've had people that, I'll give you a couple of horror stories. You know, I, I, I know of one case in which they hired a local firm. They had a deductible of, I just, I'm just going to use some figures of, of, let's say, 100 grand. They spent over the, the entire deductible, they spent the entire amount before they ever looked at the product. When they went and looked at the product, it wasn't the client's product. And they had spent over 100 grand of the client's money. I've had, I, I, we've had cases where we were called in by the, client after it had been uh, mishandled by original counsel in which the, you know, the demand you know, was well over $20 million and they were saying there was no way to defend the case. And, and we came in and within two weeks, the demand drops, drops over $20 million. So because they just didn't understand it. We've had cases in which people uh, get assigned from local, local attorneys get assigned and they're asking the clients about, you know, the, they think it's a Christmas tree stand case and wondering how they could be liable for Christmas tree stands. There's all kinds of things like that. And they don't understand the importance of going to the steam. They don't understand the importance of seeing the product right away. They don't understand any of that. And, and there's been, you know, multiple horror stories of people that got, you know, set with panel counsel that weren't, that weren't approved. And that's one of the reasons why we worked so hard and volunteered to help, help you in setting up these insurance programs so that they are taken care of. And there is a plan in place. There is a plan in place so that once a claim comes in, you're discussing it with the attorney. A lot of times you can get ahead of the game by even doing the inspections before the suit's filed. And sometimes, in many cases, we've been able to talk to plan of counsel, not even filing the suit, because we explained to them what, what happened. And setting that up, I mean, we've gone with you to make presentations to, to clients. We've gone, you know, we, we're always available to go sit down and meet with both adjusters and underwriters to explain the program. And, and I will tell you every time we've sat down and discussed it with an underwriter the un, and, and the claims person, they immediately have said, absolutely, that's what we want. You know, it's gotten to the point where we have insurance carriers that now 
don't have our program in place, but if they've written in this industry, they'll call us up and hire us anyway because they want us. Exactly. Point being, I think institutional knowledge is, you know, a must in this in this industry all the way around. From you know, from the obviously from the litigation side, from your side, but also our side. Knowing the underwriters to go to, knowing knowing the uh, the language to put in policies, knowing the structure and the placement, very very important in terms of when actual push comes to shove and and you start having frequency and claim development on these policies, the last thing that you want, you know, from my perspective is to start having the 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 insurance policy become this transaction medium, right? The, uh, the, the, the insurance policy is not meant to be the way that claims are paid for. It's meant to be a backstop in the event that, you know, something bad happens, but the claims, you know, you want to be able to buffer those claims with, with the insurance or the client's own dollars and have them in control until it reaches a certain point. But I think control is king, as we've found out there through, through, through working together. You, you want to have control over the process so you're not, you're not letting somebody that doesn't understand the industry and doesn't understand how, how these claims can be disposed of easily uh, take control of this. And that's absolutely true. And having someone like you to to put together the correct policy language, the policy language and how it's written and how the program is is ultimately finalized is so important. So many times people think they get told by their agents or brokers that that they have a certain program in place and and they don't follow through to make sure it's right. And then when a claim comes in, they're, they're left in a lurch. I can't underestimate how important it is to have someone like you to be able to make sure that process gets done correctly so that they're not left out in the lurch in, in the event of a catastrophic claim. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to see, right? I mean, you got a young company that is just starting out, you know, they want the most affordable insurance possible, uh, but somebody gets a claims made policy or a, uh, you know, really small deductible program because they just want to get out there and get in the industry can have really negative consequences, especially as a company grows and as claims frequently frequency increases. You know, it's 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 going to make things a lot harder and a lot more expensive as they grow. So, that's kind of the the teaching moment, and it's not always easy to teach. But hopefully, you know, between us and you, we can educate. And doing things like this hopefully is very educational for our guests or our you know our uh, clients and potential clients and. And that sort of thing. And it's just to follow up on that. So, you know, somebody, if they do that, what you said, which is, you know, it's very attractive, just get the, you know, whatever the cheapest insurance is uh, out there that they can get, you know, you get a claim and let's say one of your first claim comes in your two, your three, there's typically a your two or three year tail comes in late, you know, your two or your three and it's a catastrophic injury and the insurance carrier just caves and pays a lot of money. Well, now your loss run is so upside down that getting insurance in the future is now really, really hard for you. So that's something that people don't think about. It, you know, maintaining the loss runs is, is, is really important. And the second side of things is I had a client a long time ago who, you know, had uh, a deductible for X amount of, this was not a tree stand client, it's a different client, for X amount of dollars they had it. And the deductible, the injuries that were suffered by the use of its products were not were never high enough to reach that deductible. And so what the insurance carrier would do without doing any investigation is cut them a check for the deductible and then send the client the bill. 
and they wouldn't go out and inspect the product. They wouldn't try to defend it. They just knew they could make it go away without costing them any money. And it ended up getting, you know, bill after bill after bill for deductibles on claims that were completely defensible. And that client looked really quickly. The power of a self-insured retention to have claims control is extremely important in this industry. Well, hopefully we've uh, created a little bit of more content and education for the the hunting industry. Obviously, it's deer season approaching us. We're in the middle of uh, pheasant season, at least here in in uh, Minnesota. So why don't we why don't we go out there and uh, shoot them straight? I guess right. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I'm getting I'm getting set to go hunting soon myself, and I can't wait to get out there. Well, thanks a lot, Barry. We uh, really appreciate you being on Axapod. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Brian. Oh, I'm sorry, Brandon. <laughs> never, <laughs> Thanks, never. never. I had to do that after you gave me grief for it earlier. Thanks for listening to Axe Pod this week with Barry Sutton. We hope you enjoyed uh, the interview. If you're looking for more content and more interview from us, check us out on iTunes. And, and we have a whole host of episodes that we've done in the last 12 months. We'll direct you there. Also, our website is axofpod.com. A-X-E-X. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.